Free the Seeds is back. Last year, we had 1,600 people show up for our uh, Free the Seeds, Free Seed and Start Fair. And this year, we've made room for even more. So this year, the event is March 4th, Saturday at Flathead Valley Community College in the Arts and Technology Building from 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. We're going to have food trucks. We have kids' activities all day from ages 8 and up. We have a seed swap in its own location from 8 a.m. to noon. We have booths, workshops, and community conversations from 10 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., covering everything from seed starting and seed saving to fruit tree pruning, herb harvesting, beekeeping, vegetable growing, permaculture, composting, and soil health. Come on down. It's going to be great fun for the whole family. You're going to learn a lot of information, and everyone gets to go home with seeds. Looking forward to having you. Oh, and we have food trucks this year, so there'll be food for those who want some food throughout the day. So come on down. We're going to have a great time. If you have any questions, you can reach us at freetheseedsmt.com or call 406-471-0022. Welcome to the Organic Gardener podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. And if you know somebody who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast, we would just love it if you would share it with a friend. Now let's get growing. Welcome to episode 167 of the Organic Gardener podcast. It is Monday, January 2nd, very early, early in the morning because I am headed back to school today and didn't change my schedule. And we are, I'm talking with somebody who I know, listeners, you're just going to love. He's from Black Swan Organics, but he's also going to talk to us today about Grow Ohio Valley, which is a nonprofit organization working to improve food justice in Appalachia. And um, they're trying to fashion a new economic landscape, one offering increased prosperity improved health, and a better environment. And some of the things they do is change vacant city lots so they become fertile and productive. One of their goals is that school children will think it's normal to grow and eat healthy food. Um, And they just have lots of other great things on their website that they're working to improve. So I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot of these things today. One thing I'm really curious about is the food stamp challenge. So from Black Swan Organics and Grow Ohio Valley is Danny Swan to talk with us today. So welcome, Danny. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, I am just super excited. So do you want to tell us just a little bit about yourself in the beginning? Yeah, sure. So I'm living here in Wheeling, West Virginia. Uh, It's kind of hybrid Appalachian coal town and Midwest Rust Belt town. Uh, Has a lot in common with, uh, with, you know, uh, uh, some of its larger brothers like Cleveland and Akron, Ohio. Uh, We had steel mills and the steel mills have largely gone away and as have the coal mines, they're dwindling now. Uh, We're left in this sort of post-industrial situation here in Wheeling, uh, which is what I found when I arrived to Wheeling. I grew up about an hour away, uh, but came to live in in the the big city uh, sometime, let's say about 10 years ago. Uh, and at that time, was, uh, kind of found a, a love for organic gardening and have been uh, trying to share that with other people since uh, in a variety of ways, uh, one of which is Grow Ohio Valley, which is a company that I co-founded with uh, several other people here in Wheeling 
to, to do what you said to to try to um, uh, bring this sort of local food movement, which is a pretty fringe thing here in Wheeling in this sort of Rust Belt climate, uh, and bring it into the mainstream. What does that mean, a Rust Belt climate? So, gosh, how would you say? You know, Wheeling, uh, uh, it's a pretty, it's been uh, over the past few decades a pretty hard up town, right? Very prosperous in the 60s, 70s, uh, and before. Um, but as the the factory work started going overseas and, uh, you know, the coal either ran out or other forms of energy came into favor, um, it's high unemployment rates, uh, high, you know, and everything that goes along with that, high levels of poverty and uh, low scores on health performance and, uh, you know, low... Uh, you know, so educational performance, those sorts of things. Uh, high drug usage, which is a big thing we're seeing right now. Um, so it's the kind of uh, you know mentality of you know people just just want a job or they just want things to kind of get back to normal uh, as what they remember it. And the you know more how would you say of uh, things that that relate to long term health don't come onto the radar screen, I would say, if, if you look at it as an average across the town, uh, as frequently as it would in uh, some other places. So, uh, you know, people aren't thinking so much about farmer's markets except in the wealthier neighborhoods. Um, not thinking about organic food or, uh, you know, growing their own food and that kind of thing. There's more immediate and pressing concerns on the table. Uh, but as such, you know, we, we see it as a uh, a way to address a lot of these concerns in a more direct way than most people might expect, right? So nice. there's there's business opportunities in farming and gardening. And that's the obvious one. So there's ways for people who are, are out of work or uh, or underemployed uh, to get involved and do something, either you know a backyard garden to support their home economics or uh, or a kind of market venture like we're up to here. Um, there's also you know the uh, kind of em- empowering, uh, how would you say, uh, energy that comes with doing something that is life-giving for you and your family. You know, it's kind of uh, putting your flag in the ground and saying, hey, this is something that I have control over, something that I can, uh, that, that I have power in, you know, despite this sort of complex and challenging world where it feels like, especially here in Wheeling, like we've had no power. For decades right. now. We're uh, in a similar where I am in Montana because the timber industry left. You know, our mills are shutting down, yeah. and so yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, and I think this is a, a popular topic with a lot of my listeners, whether mm-hmm. they are interested in starting their own or just supporting green jobs and supporting their other their local farmers. So, well, I'm yeah. super excited to dig in a little more and hear about how it all came about and what programs you're offering. And so. But I do, Danny, like to always start out the show asking about, like, what was your very first gardening experience? Like, did you grow up gardening or, like, were you a kid, an adult? Like, what did you grow or who were you with in the beginning? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. Uh, you know, my mom had a, you know, small flower vegetable garden. And, uh, you know, my grandfather was a farmer, so I spent time on the farm as a kid. But it was all sort of uh, just a part of the, the background as a child and not something I had a, a keen interest in until 
I moved out and was on my own and had my first backyard. And uh, you know, I don't know what it was. Uh, I had a friend there; he was interested in trying out a vegetable garden. We were living together, uh, and so we just went out in the backyard and dug up the grass and planted a few lettuce and tomato seeds. And uh, and I was hooked. You know, it was yeah. just. Uh, I, it's, I'm probably you and everybody else who's listening understands. It's hard to describe. It's just, uh, what a feeling. And, uh, really haven't, uh, thought about much else since. Cool. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, that, it's, it's just gone from there. Yeah. All right. Well, it sounds like you've gotten a lot done. So then was like that, how you learned how to grow organically like with you and your friend or did your mom and your grandpa do it that way or like how'd you learn how to garden organic like where did you no we just went down to the used bookstore and got a uh you know rodale's complete guide to organic gardening it's oh, the 1953 cool. edition I'm still sitting on my desk here cool. uh and that was the the beginning for me it was just you know i, I didn't really know anything and you know, i just kind of taken orders in my childhood on how to help in the garden and hadn't really thought about it as uh, you know, understanding what I was doing and why I was doing it. Uh, but that book, uh, like, wow, what a great book, gave me some uh, uh, some methods and reasons for doing it. Yeah. Nice. Well, I love Rodale's, Rodale's, like I was telling you in the pre-chat, and I've talked about mm-hmm. it before. Um, you know, they were a huge inspiration for me and my husband. And just, I love, I was just looking at some of my Rodale's books yesterday and like my herb book and my perennial book. And, you know, I've got the big encyclopedia and just, um, they've been an organic gardening magazine was just a huge influence, uh, for me. So let's see, do you want to explain what grow Ohio Valley is more than like what I talked about? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Okay. So maybe it would be best to do it as a as a story. Perfect. Uh, or Stories are great. Narrative. Yeah. Good. So let's see. It was eight years ago or so now. I was working in an inner city after school program here in Wheeling. Uh, basically the, the after school program for the poor kids. Mm-hmm. A community center. They do summer school and literacy programs. A really great place called the Lachlan Chapel. And uh, I was working there uh, kind of as a uh, my job while I was in college. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to get the kids outside, get them off the concrete a little bit, give them uh, a little taste of the things that, you know, I, looking back on my childhood had been important to me uh, with, you know, being outdoors and having some connection with the natural world. Uh, so I, myself and a, a couple colleagues, we went down the street and uh, we, we just rode our bikes around and looked for vacant lots and kind of settled on one. Uh, dug up a little bit of the ground on this vacant lot and planted some tomatoes. Uh, a little while later, figured out that there was somebody who owned that property who ended up being the Department of Transportation, and uh, they gave us permission to uh, formalize our permission to use the property. Oh. And that, that was kind of uh, the beginning of sort of doing gardening in a, a community-engaged sort of way. Um, uh, we took the kids down there and just did fun stuff with them. You know, we weren't, uh, we didn't have a curriculum or anything like that. We just wanted to get them outside and do something fun and, and let them run around and that sort of thing. So the first year we we had, uh, you know, all the boys kind of take one chunk of the garden and plant pumpkins and all the girls in another garden. And it was it was a competition to see whether boys or girls could grow the, the bigger pumpkins. Uh, just things like that, you know, just goofy stuff. And it was a ton of fun. And the kids got really into it in a surprising way, you know, to, 
uh, you know, wheelbarrowing manure around. And uh, it, it was amazing to see, you know, if, if you've spent much time around inner city kids. I was really skeptical that they would even, you know, they were kind of looking at the grass, wondering if it was going to stain their Nikes, you know. But, yes. Uh, <laughs> but they were they just got so into it as soon as we got past that the first sort of trepidation all right i have to ask um, like what age kids are these like middle schoolers or because el- like i said i teach second grade like what age group are you working with here yeah so at that time it was second to fifth grade that was my classroom was the second Perfect. to fifth grade kids Perfect. although shortly after that i moved up to taking the middle school kids middle middle school and high school which became which you know kind of took me down another road as well because this this garden which we started just kind of in a corner of this big vacant lot about it's about an acre, about the size of a football field. Oh, my goodness. Um, once I got into the middle school, high school room, you know, we, we started growing a little bit more. I had some more kind of able-bodied kids who were able to do a little bit more work. So, you know, uh, kind of month by month, year by year, we took over a little bit more and a little bit more of the lot until two or three years down the road, we were pretty much using the whole thing. Um, we had chickens there. We still do. Um, nice. had and, uh, you know, a perennial patch with raspberries and blackberries and rhubarb and um and then the annual vegetables uh, so we had these uh I, I had these kind of middle school and high school kids mostly mostly boys um and they were out there uh helping me all the time and they wanted to see if they could make some money off of this you know is this something that we can hey these these vegetables obviously have value is this is there something we can do here so we started Every Saturday morning, taking the vegetables off this vacant lot and taking it over to the Woodsdale Farmer's Market here in Wheeling, West Virginia, and uh, setting up and selling vegetables. And that's, that's when we, I, I started my kind of uh, intensive self-education on market gardening and uh, thinking about it in, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of efficient production and uh, holistic soil and plant health and, and so forth. Okay, yeah, so, so that's, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Starting with your market gardening education, like if you were starting over again today from day one, like what's the biggest thing that you would do differently, or like God, that I you would want to think or just? What a hard one because it's been such a. I mean, I've done so many things wrong, you know. I've, God, but everything that I've done wrong, you know, it's been part of a, a really fun and interesting journey. So I love I'm not that. sure that I would, how much I would change, you know, because it's, you know, doing one thing wrong. Well, then there's a, a farmer who notices this thing you're doing wrong. And so he shows up or she shows up and Sorry, makes like the worst podcaster, and, right? Whose like phone goes off in the middle of the thing. Sorry. Say that again. <laughs> doing one <laughs> thing. It's, you know, you're doing something wrong and then the, uh, 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 you know, that, that attracts people, you know, it, it's, it's, I have this weird theory, um, it, uh, <laughs> where it, it's called a sort of determined incompetence, right? And it, it's really attractive to people. It's like when you don't know what you're doing, but you really, really, really want to do it and you want to do a good job, people who know how to do it start kind of just appearing or showing up out of the woodwork. It's like this law of attraction thing. And so, you know, by doing things wrong and just sort of feeling my way into it as, you know, somebody with zero, you know, horticulture education and, and so forth, brought so many interesting people and farmers and mentors along who saw what we were trying to do here in, in the city and wanted to help us succeed. And, like, great relationships formed out of that. So I'm not sure that I would go back and, you know, like, go to ag school or, or do something like that. 
um, there are some some resources that I found since that first Rodale Rodale's uh, guide to organic gardening that have since been super valuable to me. That you know are kind of the things that are on my desk all the time and I'm always referencing. Um, and one of those is uh, Lee. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce his last name. Lee Reich, I believe, is how he says it. Um, he has uh, the book Weedless Gardening and several other books in the same with the same theme of no-till uh, gardening, uh, which proved to be really important to us, kind of life-saving actually on our inner-city vacant lots, because all these vacant lots used to have houses on them, and the houses were demolished, and uh, if we're lucky, the, the demolition contractor spread a, a few inches of topsoil on top of the demolished house that, you know, that's still laying in the basement there under your feet. Uh, so till it, you know, tilling the garden, you know, after we'd broken three rototillers, it was becoming apparent that we had to find a smarter way. Uh, so it was really nice for us to get that, that information that there was, and that opened us up to the whole world of no-till gardening, uh, kind of coming from a permaculture direction, and uh, Ruth Stout in her early books about how to garden without an aching back, and these sort of no-till principles of uh, basically just being really dedicated mulch, mulcher, who never tills and never cultivates the soil. Um, so that that was huge for us, um, and I'm, I'm really uh, that was a gift to us from another farmer in that book that that really changed things and the way we're doing things. And I probably was what allowed us to be successful enough to still be doing it now. Um, you know, I've also taken a lot uh, lately uh, some new information coming in from. Um, Steve Solomon and Erica, Erica Reinemer, they wrote a book called uh, The Intelligent Gardener. Are you familiar with this one? No. It's, uh, I'm very not familiar with much of this other than Ruth Stout. I mean, I've sure, heard of the sure. no-till and the permaculture. That's kind of been a big theme ever since John Moore, who's like over in Australia, first talked about that when I first started out. And I was like, what? No-till? And, like, and then um, since then I've you know, learned quite a bit about it, but I haven't heard of these books. They sound great. Yeah, they're really, really great resources. Uh, I, I especially like the one I was talking about a minute ago uh, by Lee Reich, R-E-I-C-H, because it's, you know, it's a really quick read. It's like a, it's a, you know, novella-sized book that, you know, kind of fits in your pocket, um, and it's it's really light on, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of technical jargon and, and just really, uh, really user-friendly. So I could hand it to the high school kids, you know, and they could read it. And nice. Kind of wrap their minds around it. That, that was really nice. Um, but now, you know, now I've been getting into some thicker stuff. You know, we've, we, now that we're growing more, uh, you know, doing more production gardening, we've expanded to four more city lots and uh, are growing quite a bit, you know, really intensive production here in the city. Uh, you know, that Making little tweaks and little changes can really mean a lot, you know, if, if you can get 10% more uh, production out of a certain garden space. You know, if it's a big enough garden space, that can be really meaningful uh, as far as the amount of food you're producing for our community to, to eat and as far as, you know, how the the sort of economics of trying to grow food in a community work. If you can, if your plants can be a little bit more efficient or, or productive, it's it's really crucial. Uh, and that's where this kind of newer kind of, it's, it's soil, you know, soil science information is coming in about how to balance micronutrients and minerals and uh, learning about, you know, the soil's cation exchange capacity and it's the sort of three pathways by which plants can uh, can find nutrients and, you know, which of those have we been paying attention to and which of those have we been neglecting. 
Um, this book, The Intelligent Gardener, is a really nice primer in, in that. It's basically a soil science 101 uh, coming from some people who are you know, lifelong organic gardeners themselves. So I've, I've really appreciated what, what that's done for us. Um, nice. Uh, uh, I'm so curious about kind of a lot a, of what you're talking ahead, about. Yeah. Well, because for one thing, like, so I teach on a reservation and there are a lot of similar houses that have been like burned down and are still just sitting there. So uh, I'm super curious about how that's going. And you're not even like removing that stuff. You're just building right on top of it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot of words for it were sheet composting or sheet mulching or uh, lasagna gardening is another kind of popular term for the way we're doing it. Um, but so let's say, you know, you start with just plain grass, like in your backyard um, or, you know, patchy grass or whatever you've got. Let's say it's a, a building demolition site and it's kind of rubbly, kind of grassy. Um, we, first thing, of course, that we need to do is get rid of the grass. And typically this will be done with a rototiller or a plow or your shovel or or however you're going to bust up the soil and, and get rid of the grass. Uh, but instead of doing that, all we do is we, we lay newspaper on top of the grass or cardboard, something biodegradable, that will starve the grass of light, right? So we lay out the shape of our garden bed, uh, you know, kind of stake it off and, and use string to lay out the corners. And, uh, and then we, inside of that garden bed, we, we put newspaper or cardboard on all the grass, and then immediately on top of that newspaper or cardboard, we throw any kind of organic mulch, whatever we can get our hands on. Uh, so that might be leaves or grass clippings or wood chips or any, any of the usual mulches, uh, manure, uh, chicken manure, compost, anything at all uh, to cover up that, that cardboard or newspaper. And then wait a month, and the grass is dead underneath. Uh, but not dead, it's dead in a sort of passive way in the sense that it's just been starved of light but the root structures have not been disturbed. Uh, the plant matter is decomposing uh, right into the soil. The uh, sort of soil life, especially earthworms, our favorite, are yeah, uh, very happy because they're an environment that's moist and dark and, uh, and not being disrupted. So they're you know, kind of tunneling through the whole thing with their, their colloids and bringing this organic matter that you've put down on top of the newspaper or the cardboard and kind of grabbing it and carrying it down through the soil. And in a very short order, uh, not as short order as if you had a rototiller, of course, but within the, the course of a few months of this, you start getting a, a surprisingly nice soil tilt, you know, a kind of soil that, that is, you know, you can grab in your hands and it moves through your fingers and you can break up little clumps into smaller clumps. And, um, and then you, after a few more years of this, you know, when, when you start adding lots and lots of mulch, because we're always mulching, we're always adding new layers if, if a lawn care company dumps off a bunch of grass clippings, they go straight into one of the garden beds and always just adding mulch, adding mulch, adding mulch so that we can never see bare soil. Uh, bare soil is sight unseen. At least that's our goal in the garden. Um, the, uh, uh, it, by adding that mulch in the bottom layers, decomposing, and then adding fresh mulch on top and always doing that, always doing that, always doing that, we've, we've built up this really nice layer, pretty thick layer of organic matter and that organic matter is mobile. It gets transported down into the, through the various soil levels by the earthworms. And, and then you get all kinds of other sort of magical things happening. Uh, what they call in, in, uh, in horticulture the, the biological pathway. It's this way that 
the microorganisms and macroorganisms in the soil are unlocking nutrients and making them available to your plants. So this, the, and there's tons of research out there on that, and most of it, I'm, I've only scratched the tip of the iceberg, but there's a, uh, you know, so much information out there about how mushrooms and mycelium uh, kind of these beneficial mycelium or mycorrhiza or, or uh, are interacting with your plants and you know of course mushrooms grow where it's moist and dark and the, the mycelium really take off in those environments and when they have organic food to eat so by always mulching always mulching you're creating an environment where these mycelial networks or mushroom networks can spread out underground and those attach to your roots and uh, do symbiotic things with your plants you know the pepper plant that you're trying to grow those those mycorrhizae are attaching onto the roots of your plants and helping them uh, in exchange for, for getting some things back from the plants. And it's, so many things can happen when you, uh, when you don't disrupt the, the soil or do so as minimally as possible. Uh, and that, that's allowed us, uh, in my estimation, to have a really marginal soil on, on a, uh, these urban sites that are as or, or more productive than, you know, some of the most fertile farmland out there. Nice. Wow, you really went into a lot of, um, you know, kind of like science there for people, but kept it really, you know, like you said, easy to understand for like a high school student or for anybody listening um, and that's like, that's interesting. I'm talking about getting, I've been talking about getting my class, uh, thing of earthworms to have in the classroom to compost, you know, uh, for their class pet. <laughs> Cause they really want a class pet. And somebody was talking about, um, doing the vermiculture with the, the worms. And I was like, Oh, I might do that. And especially my kids eat breakfast in my classroom. So we always oh, yeah. have like some fruit scraps to, I keep, I have them composting and I just take it home on the weekend. So I'm thinking, sure, uh, yeah. I got the bins. I just have to get the worms. So, uh, yeah, great fun. We do that with the kids and, and a lot of our school gardening programs. They, they, they always love the worms. Yeah. <laughs> There's a really there's a great book on that too called I'm not gonna remember the name of the author but the book is called Worms Eat My Garbage and if you, you haven't found it yet you can put uh -uh. your hands on it's also kid friendly it's a kid friendly book so. all right I love that uh well so do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year kind of like getting back to my questions I usually ask yeah sure it was uh. It was a hard year for a lot of things. We had a really mild winter last year, which I had, my theory is that that uh, kind of exploded our bug populations. It was also the year of the locust or cicadas for us here in West Virginia. Aww, um, we have 17-year cicadas. They came out this year in you know massive numbers, kind of uh, uh, in biblical proportions. Uh, wow. And, uh, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, a lot of the predators that would normally be eating other bugs, you know, just feasted on these really easy prey, these cicadas. Oh. Uh, so anyway, all these things kind of led up to the, it being the most intensive, intense bug year I've experienced since I started gardening uh, 10 mm -hmm. years ago. Um, and so we, we had a really hard year. It was, it was tough. Uh, but I think not without benefit because it, uh, it, uh, you know, kind of, Put, put, at least put me back on the path of, uh, you know, researching all the time and reading all the books that I can and talking to other farmers. And, you know, now we have a problem to solve. So it, it's kind of like it's been a whole nother level of education for me. Uh, the I like really the way bad you're one putting that. Here was, uh, thanks, yeah. 
Um, it's true, though. It's true. It's 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 back to that same theory of uh, of determined incompetence. <laughs> uh, when you don't know stuff, you know, you really uh, it opens up a lot of doors for you if you're if you're just determined and uh, want to keep keep going for it. But anyway, the the probably the hardest one this year was the cucumber beetle. Uh, both striped and spotted cucumber beetles. They were everywhere. There, uh, if. if if you're listening to this and you've ever had a cucumber plant that was looking really nice and robust and healthy, and then you just come out the next day and just half the plant is dead, it's just wilted over like it's, you know, like it's been in a drought for the last month, even though you've been watering it and caring for it. Uh, and then the next day, the the other half of the plant is dead, and you wonder what just happened to my cucumber plant. The whole thing died. It was probably bacterial wilt, uh, and bacterial wilt is a disease that's gets to the plant via the cucumber beetle. Uh, they, uh, tr- when they bite your plant, which is pretty minimal damage, you know, they're not voracious eaters, uh, but when they bite your plant, they, they transmit this disease, this bacterial wilt disease. And that was our biggest struggle this year, anything in the curcubit family. So our, our squashes, our melons, our cucumbers, uh, they were, we felt under siege all year long. Uh, that was really tough. Uh, what was it a good year for? It was a great year for... Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Before oh, we go ahead. to yeah. what it was a good yeah, year sure. for, let's go back to... So what do you do about this wilt? Uh, wait, what'd you call it? Bacterial, bacterial wilt. wilt. Yeah. Yeah, once you have the bacterial wilt, you've got it, and that's that's really it. You know, we we learned, uh, you know, once you see a few plants in the patch dying, you know, we we would have things more on the order of a 300-foot row of cucumbers. And once they start going... They're going. So we just get all the cucumbers we can and, and rip out the crop. Uh, oh. that, that is what it is. Really, the solution is to keep the cucumber beetles off of them from the get-go. Once they have the bacterial wilt, the, the story's been told. So what can um, you do to keep the beetles off? Like put a cover yeah, on it? Or, Organic-wise, there's, there's a lot of things. I can, gosh, I'll, I'll, I can run a list here of oh, cool. you know, oh, kind of sure. possible uh, responses to that. Uh, one, and, and the most important one, is exclusion so we have some high tunnel greenhouses here on one of our vacant lots so what we're going to do this year in 2017 is use insect screening on all of our ventilation you know on our roll-up sides on this this greenhouse and and anywhere that there's an opening there will be insect screening so actually physically keeping them out of the environment and that can be done in the home garden or in the field too with row cover this kind of cheese clothy material uh, that's sold by all the kind of gardening, you know, you can buy it from Johnny's or uh, Fedco or, you know, any of the big seed, seed suppliers. They, they usually have this stuff. It's called Row Cover. There's several different companies that make it. And it's basically a, a cheesecloth, and it functions as an in- insect screen. It lets air and water through but keeps the bugs out. Uh, there's all kinds of information on the Internet or in books about how to, how to use that stuff. It's, it's pretty simple. There's also organic sprays, uh, pyrethrin-based sprays. Um, uh, Pyganic is the big brand. Uh, that you know, they're, uh, it's it, it, it was marginally effective for us. Uh, it, it you have to make contact with the bug in order to kill the bug or disable it uh, with these organic sprays. You know, it's not like a systemic insecticide where you can just kind of water the soil and the plant takes up this poison and then all bugs that bite the plant die right it's not uh that um those things really work those uh those sort of chemical uh solutions 
Uh, but because we're organic and we're not using them, we're uh, restrained to these uh, things like pyrethrins. And, you know, they, they were just coming in such number. You know, it's like you'd, we'd have to spray the plants every half hour. Oh, and it was goodness, totally yeah. impractical, you know, because you just spray them and you, you kill the bugs that are on there, or at least you hope you did. And then, you know, they just, from the woods and from the trees and from the grass, and, you know, they just they just come in again in waves, you know. So they were, uh, I think exclusion will prove to be the, uh, the the winning ticket for us. And a lot of people are doing that. They're, you know, they're doing that with their high tunnel greenhouses now is putting uh, insect screen. And then, and then there are some other creative things that other people are doing. The cucumber beetles really like the flowers, and they tend to sleep in the flowers of the cucumber plant. So they go into the flower. So there's one farmer. He goes around with a, a little mini propane torch like you use to solder copper pipes in your house. He goes around and burns all the flowers, at least the male flowers, uh, that aren't going to be producing fruit every morning and just scorches all the, the cucumber beetles that are hiding in there before they move out. Um, but really, you know, it's, I think it's going to be two things. It's going to be insect exclusion and then planning for loss. So instead of uh, planting a cucumber plant and expecting us to give it cucumbers all summer long, we'll expect it to give us cucumbers for maybe a month and then for the plants to die, you know, even despite our best efforts, and then to have another crop of cucumbers that have been planted so that they start producing right when those ones die off and then expect that second succession to die off. And, uh, you know, just plant more. Basically, that's what it boils down to. Plant more over a staggered time period that allows for uh, certain crops to tail off and still have cucumbers to take to the farmer's market. Oh, how interesting. Okay, I like that idea. Um, okay. That's By the way, you know, succession gardening has been, that's been really important to us too. You know, this idea of not planting things in one shot. And, and probably most of your listeners are familiar with that, but, uh, you know, it can be done in the home garden too. It's Even with tomatoes, we've taken to doing that. You know, we plant our first wave of tomatoes in early May here. I'm not sure. Probably you're a little bit behind us in Montana. But uh, we plant ours in early May. But then we plant another, we set out more plants in mid-June, uh, you know, six weeks after we planted our first one. So that when that first batch is tailing off or, or something happened to it, you know, we get a bad blight or, you know, the hornworms are really out of control or something like that. We've got this second crop that's coming on to pick up the slack and doing that across the board to try to get more even uh, some production across the entire growing season. And that, that can, you can do on any scale, you know, whether you have a thousand tomato plants or 10 tomato plants, you can, um, it's helpful. Okay. I like that. Our, you know, our big thing with succession planning is, you know, our season's so short. Most things, like, you're lucky if you're going to get a crop, if you put it in at the right time and, to, you know, to be, um, whatever, producing something before, you know, the season's over. You yeah, know, like wow. tomatoes yeah, here um, where we are. Do... But although there are people that are planting tomatoes, you know, doing the hoop house thing like you're talking about. So they're extending their season. So they're able to start getting ripe tomatoes in June and um, July. I just posted an episode with a guy down um, closer to Missoula, which is a little bit south of us. And he talked a lot about um, he's starting his seeds now in December already. Yeah, so that right. he's getting a crop earlier. But for, like, Mike and I, like, at our place, a lot of things are just, you know, like corn or I don't know about cucumbers. I think cucumbers, you know, they come ripe, and that's pretty much all Mike grows. But that might work to put them in succession. I don't know. Uh, 
So what did grow well? So you kind of answered the question of what are you going to do different next year, but what, what did grow well this year? You know, beans are always a stalwart. They, they're just a really forgiving plant. So, you know, we had great quantities of green beans. and Tomatoes did pretty good. Jeez, uh, what else? What else went really well? Um, oh, man. You're testing my memory here. Uh, we had a lot of trouble with potatoes. There was a... Uh, this sort, I think it's called just black stem rot. I don't know the botanical name for it uh, or the, the scientific name for the disease, but it attacks the stems of tomato plants. And I guess there was an outbreak in, in New England this year where most of the organic seed potato and, that's sold, uh, oh. at least through our suppliers around here, comes from. Uh, and then, So there was an outbreak of that in 2015, which affected us in 2016. So we had a rough year with potatoes, too. But, yeah, I, I could just kind of go crop by crop and give my reflections on it. But, you know, for one reason or another, the pumpkins were uh, extraordinary this year. Uh, it might have just been because we were feeding those cucumber beetles so many delicious cucumber plants that they ignored our pumpkins. But we have <coughs> phenomenal pumpkin pumpkin production. Nice. Uh, okay. Yeah, we grow so many things. We grew, you know, 40 different you know, species of plants this year. And, uh, every one of them comes with its own set of uh challenges and rewards for sure okay before we get to the root of things we're going to thank our sponsors and affiliate links organifi green juice is a gently dried superfood mix that supports health mental clarity while detoxifying your body all in one delicious drink what i love about organifi it makes me feel great it's easy it doesn't take much time it's full of nutrients and superfoods that I have a hard time getting more anywhere else and it just tastes delicious now as a teacher you all know that our days are our time is totally limited I have kids in my classroom since 7 30 in the morning till six o'clock at night um, so just even using this simple thing can be difficult for me but I can pull it off and so can you if you want to feel good and get all your um, greens in a simple easy drink Remember, um, you can get a discount as an Organic Gardener podcast listener by entering code OGP16 and Organifi will give you a 15% discount now. So just go to Organifi.com and when you go to check out, enter code OGP16 and they'll give you 15% off your order anytime. Did you know that you could support the Organic Gardener podcast without doing anything differently? If you're going to buy something on Amazon.com, since I'm an Amazon affiliate, if you go to Amazon through a link on my page, which every book that is listed on my website is linked to Amazon.com, you don't have to buy that book, but anything you buy that day from Amazon um, will give me a very, very small commission, but... I got to tell you, it would sure help pay for, you know, just some of the basics it costs to um, keep the podcast up there. And now let's get to the root of things. And it's kind of like my lightning round. Okay, great. Yeah. And then, so you're you're going to be hitting me with like rapid fire questions? Or? Kind of. Yeah, good. Uh, cool. So like what activity is your least favorite activity to do in the garden? Like Danny, is there something you have to get yourself out there and like force yourself to do? Man, No. I love being out there. I love it. Man, I just love it. I'm, I'm blessed. I have a life where I'm doing exactly what I want to do uh, pretty much all the time. Uh, you know, probably what's a, a little less interesting and exciting for me is the sort of off-season work of uh, production planning and budgeting and, 
you know, planning out the growing season and you know, kind of spending a lot, a lot of time with a notebook or a computer, um, you know, that, that sort of thing. That, um, that just has to be done, and it's kind of like the, I guess you say, the necessary evil of the process, um, which is fine. Uh, but, man, once the garden season starts going, I, I just, uh, everything, you, you know, whether it's being out there all day, weeding one bean row for five straight hours or, uh, you know, fixing the irrigation lines, all of it is interesting and exciting to me and full of opportunities to learn and do things better. Um, I'm, yeah, I love it. I'm in love with it. Cool. Well, then on the flip side, what's your favorite activity to do in the garden? What do you like the most? I really love spending time with tomatoes. That jumps right into my mind. I love suckering, pruning, trellising tomatoes and just being there in the patch, you know, kind of crawling down the row and uh, getting up close and personal with them. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's something about the smell or of the tomato plants, which is addictive. I believe it's addictive. It's actually an addictive smell. I love it. (laughs) Or it's, uh, I don't know what it is, but I love my time in the tomato patch. Nice. Yeah, they definitely do have their own, you know, distinct smell and that's true cool um so what's the best gardening advice you've ever received i'm sure you have tons it's gonna be hard to pick something but if you could pick one word yep use as a verb mulch always mulch your garden if you have bare dirt do your best find some mulch and put it on the ground it does so much it keeps the weeds down keeps the moisture in uh yeah use mulch just mulch okay uh how about a favorite tool? If you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what would it be? Mm, only one tool. Hmm. Let's think. It'd be a close call. I really love my broad fork. Uh, I like that. I saw your picture of you using the broad fork on the Skype yeah, connection. Sure. <laughs> cool. That was a carefully chosen picture. Yeah, it, it, it allows you to loosen the soil, especially if you have clay or for some reason you have compacted soil. Uh, or you've been rototilling for a long time and you have a hard pan a few inches down where the, the blades of the rototiller have been constantly scraping the same the same place, you can get that hard pan. The broad fork allows you to get something metal, you know, get those metal tines down in there and just kind of rock the soil back and, and lift it up just enough to aerate it, but without turning the soil or disturbing any earthworms or anything like that. Uh, that's a really crucial tool for us. Okay. What was the other one you were saying that was like a close second? You know, I, I also use this... So we use this system called mulch and furrow. Um, at least that's what I call it. Uh, uh, and it's we have a garden bed. We tend to have four-foot-wide garden beds. Uh, I really like that width because you can reach in from both sides uh, fairly comfortably without having to step in the garden bed, which is very important to us because we're not tilling. We try to never step in our beds uh, so that they stay nice and fluffy and, uh, and not compacted. Um, we do this mulch and furrow system where, so I'll take a bed, right? Let's say we have a four foot wide bed and it's whatever, 50, 50 feet long. Uh, we'll mulch the whole thing. And if what we have on hand is grass clippings, great. That's what we use. If what we have is wood chips, that's what we use. But of course, if you have a, a bed that's been mulched with wood chips, for example, uh, and you need to plant some lettuce seeds, uh, that's not going to happen. You can't just drop lettuce seeds into wood chips. Um, you probably won't get any of them to germinate. So what we do is we then take the, the, those wood chips and we create furrows, either with a rake, and rakes are thus very important to us because we spend so much time mulching, uh, kind of a, just a steel rake uh, like you use to spread gravel or, or something. You know, um, We take a steelhead rake and, uh, and create furrows in that that, that look like just a, a small trough in that mulch, right? So it's like uh, it's taking the mulch in a furrow and exposing the soil 
in that furrow in a straight line the length of the bed. And if it's lettuce, we probably have three rows in a four-foot bed. Uh, so we'd create three furrows where we're expo- exposing the soil at the bottom of that mulch. Um, and then we take a little bit of finished compost, really nice quality finished compost. This is where the wheelbarrow becomes one of our favorite tools. Um, then you have That's a wheelbarrow what I said full of mulch. my favorite tool was when yeah, somebody you got... asked me. Oh. Hello. Hi, Danny. Sorry about hey. that. No problem. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, uh, so let's see. What were we talking about? The wheelbarrow. The wheelbarrow, yep. Should I jump right back into it? Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, so so the wheelbarrow then, very important to us for this mulch and furrow method of making a furrow in the mulch uh, and and then putting a little bit of compost in that furrow, a really nice finished compost. So what the bed ends up looking like is a, a bed of solid wood chips with kind of three stripes of compost in it, that compost being in the furrow so that it's touching the, the, the topsoil underneath. Um, and then in that, that compost stripe, we can plant any kind of seed we want. We can do lettuce seed or carrot seed or any, any, anything we want to direct seed we can do into that. It gives us a break in the mulch. Uh, and then if we've made that compost correctly, of course, it's weed seed free. So you end up with this bed where everything that's exposed to the surface is either a, a, a weed-free compost or a thick mulch. Uh, so in theory, you have no weeds. Of course, weeds find their way in one way or another, and, and there's always a little bit of weeding to do, but it's a very little bit, comparatively speaking, to a bare soil garden. Um, so yeah, so the rake becomes very important to us, as is the broad fork and, uh, and the wheelbarrow and, and a shovel, naturally. Yeah. Uh... Man, you're just full of golden seeds today. And so, like, one thing I keep thinking is listeners, if there are single girls out there, they're going to be wondering, does this guy have a girlfriend? Is this guy married? <laughs> and, yeah, it's, uh, if you hear the fatigue in my voice, it's the two-year-old and the three-month-old that oh. were not sleeping so great last night. <laughs> okay. And then, um, so I think listeners are probably, like, one question that keeps going through my head, like, using the wood chips and... Um, the compost and mixing it together is like, um, oh, what was I going to say about it? Like, how do you, like, where do you get the wood chips and how do you, um, like, I like the way that you use just whatever's available, but like, where are you finding all this stuff in the place where you live? Yeah. Wood chips mostly come from a call around to the various tree trimming services and they're, you know, they're always looking for a place to dump, uh, there's and we're right in the middle of town so that's a big benefit for us you know because they're always doing work on town trees uh and so we we have a nice place right here downtown where they can drop off their wood chips Um, that's an easy one uh we have you know i I just got out the yellow pages you know i started calling lawn care companies and saying hey can i have your grass clippings what do you do do you bag them up and, and put them out for the trash if that's the case can you just drop them off at our place instead um so uh, although I used to spend a lot of time with my pickup truck out going to places where there was organic matter, manure or leaves or, or whatever, you know, a pile of this or that, now I, I, I don't think I did that once in 2016. I just, now I just pick up the phone and I call people and it's, it's so much quicker because I don't have to, uh, I don't have to hand load my truck and, you know, they're, it's, it's mutually beneficial. And of course they're coming with big dump trucks, so, you know, they have, uh, you know, 10 times what I can fit in my pickup truck in, in the back of one of theirs. And it's already full, and they just need a place to dump it. Um, so that's, 
Uh, right now, this time of year, the, the city is out there. The city of Wheeling uh, Operations Department is out there picking up leaves on the side of the road. They have a giant vacuum trucks uh, that are you know, packed full of leaves. So I just gave the operations manager a call, and they dropped us off five or six big dump truck loads of leaves. So that'll get us through 2017. We'll have enough leaves to use as compost, um, or as uh, uh, mulch, excuse me. Uh, one thing I will say about mulching, although we're very, you know, I don't really care what kind of mulch goes on what bed at what time, you know, as long as it's a mulch and it's something that'll biodegrade. We do try to alternate mulches. So if the last thing used was leaves, I try to use wood chips or grass clippings. And, uh, and likewise with the other ones, if it was wood chips, I try to use something other than wood chips, just so there's some variety of nutrients uh, that are you know, kind of slowly breaking down. And you're feeding a wider profile of, of soil <coughs> microorganisms and as well uh, to have a kind of more biodiversity in the soil. Nice. Okay. Uh, how about a favorite recipe to cook from the garden? Favorite recipe? Oh, man, my favorite one is beet soup. That's what did really good this year. Thanks for reminding me. Beets. Okay. It was the year of the beet. Oh, man, did they just love 2016. No, no idea why. But, wow, gosh, they just produced and produced fast and healthy big, delicious beets. Uh, <clears throat> and my favorite thing to do, to do with them is to bring them in and peel them. It's so simple, and you can it, – it's so forgiving. I just uh, – I, I peel them and then boil them a little bit just to soften them up a hair, and then I like to blend them, put them in the blender. Or you can use one of those – oh, I don't know what they're called. It's like a little uh, blender, a handheld blender that you can just stick right down on the pot, and it pulverizes everything in there. So then you kind of have this beet slurry, right, this red beet slurry. And uh, <clears throat> then dump in a can of coconut milk from the grocery store, mm-hmm. and that's it. Heat it up, and that's it. Uh, coconut beet soup, just nothing but beets, a little bit of water, and coconut milk. Oh, man, I love that. That's my favorite thing. And that's, okay. that tends to be the things that I really enjoy or where it's just a couple of ingredients where you can really enjoy uh, whatever vegetable it is that's in there. Okay, cool. Our beets on the flip side did awful this year. We had like no beets. I was just asking Mike, we were just talking about that because I was like, do we have any pickled beets I can put on my salad tonight? And he was saying that we didn't really get any beets. They just didn't grow. But we kind of had a, our garden, Mike was working full time last spring and just, uh, we kind of got off to a late start. And we had a weird season here in Montana. Like it started off really warm again. And like everybody was like, wow, we could put our stuff in it early. Then we got, what happened? Like we got the super hot spell in June that yeah. was just kind of crazy. And I don't know, it was just a tough year. And yeah, maybe there was like pretty. some kind of cold thing in between or something weird, but uh, sure. like we had a hundred degrees on like June first, which is like unheard Ooh. of in Montana, and like wow. a week or two of just a hundred degrees, super hot weather, and then it kind of like then I think is when we got the cold after that and kind of just went back to a, but it was a good year. I don't know. We had a lot of fires too. Uh, anyway. Danny, what, how about like a favorite internet resource? Do you get on the internet and research gardening anywhere special? I do, yeah. I do some Googling around and, uh, you know, I, I tend to steer myself towards extension websites when I'm looking for answers on something. You know, if, I wanna, if I'm going to Google life cycle of the cucumber beetle, you know, I try to uh, click on the links that have .edu at the end. Uh, there are lots of great resources out there. There's, a, there's just tend to be, uh, you know, you can kind of trust that there's, 
the scientific community behind whatever information is being stated on the website. Um, no, I don't really have a kind of go-to website, you know, that I have bookmarked that I'm always going to every time. I, I, I kind of use books, paper books, as a, you know, sort of the, the guiding principles and basic methods for, for what I do and, you know, learning from those and then uh, the Internet for, you know, those kind of really specific pointed questions like, uh, you know, oh, there, you know, there is one website that I could point people towards that, um, oh, I'm not going to remember the URL, but if you just Google organic calc, that's organic, the word organic with the letters A-L-C at the end of it. And it's a calculator. And this has been a really useful tool for us, really, over the last 12 months. Uh, it was put together by the authors of this Intelligent Gardener book mm-hmm. uh, that are uh, you know, really focused on balancing the minerals and nutrients in the soil uh, for optimal plant health. This calculator, it basically lets you take a soil test. Uh, like you, you take your soil and you mail it into a soil lab, right? And they send you back information on what's in your soil. You can take those numbers and it's, you know, maybe 15 different things, you know, calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, potassium, all that stuff. Uh, you can plug it right into this calculator and it spits out a, a, a response for you. Uh, it basically tells you what to do to amend your soil. You know, oh, you're low on potassium, add if you have 100 square feet, add 18 pounds of potassium. You know, and it, uh, that's been a great resource for us. It takes a lot of, you know, we don't have to become soil scientists. There are soil scientists out there who are sort of making these kind of tools available to you. I'm sure there's many other calculators out there, too. That's just the one that we've found and we've been using, organic calc. Um, and I, I think there's a, maybe a $10 fee to become a, an annual user or something. It's very minimal, uh, kind of nominal fee uh, to be able to use that. So. Nice. You are just full of golden seeds. Listeners are going to be. Nobody's recommended that or even talked about a resource like that. Uh, and soil health has definitely been a huge theme on my show. I mean, pretty much it all comes down to your soil. That's, you know, continuously people are talking about that. So I think that's a great resource for people. Um, and just like how often do you test your soil? Like every year? Or? We are now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, was pretty haphazard about it in my early years of gardening, but yeah, every year, definitely, um, really want to, I mean, gosh, we just have so few, few tools in our toolkit as organic gardeners, as far as dealing with problems, uh, you know, especially bug and disease problems and anything that we can do to improve soil health so that we can minimize, you know, what we're dealing with down the road with plant health is such a huge benefit, especially if you're thinking in terms of, you know, the economics of growing market, market vegetables. Um, and, and if you're getting, you know, to a scale that's beyond, oh, you know, you can't, it's just not practical to go pick bugs off by hand anymore. So you want to have a whole fields of crops that are just so healthy that they can do uh, the most possible to fend off the bugs and diseases. Um, you know, that concept was really keyed into me by, by Elliot Coleman. Have, yeah. have you read any of his books? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's really great. He has this Winter Harvest Handbook. That's our, that's our go-to resource for growing, for season extension, for growing in greenhouses. And, oh. um, you know, he, he was the, you know, it was kind of through his book and then some independent kind of just emailing back and forth with him, which he's, he's willing to do with anybody. He's a very accessible guy, um, is the, the importance of getting those soil tests and learning. You know, he said in his fields, he, he had a lot of trouble. He wasn't getting good production uh, until he, you know, finally did the soil test and found out that he was missing boron from his soil, just this one little 
tiny micronutrient that exists in very small quantities in the soil. It just wasn't on his farm. And plants need that to be, you know, to be at optimal health. And so he, you know, got some laundry borax and sprinkled it on his field and uh, and his plants have been much healthier since. So, you know, there's, there's little things like that that you can, uh, that you'll learn from a soil test. Cool. Uh, so then you've mentioned a bunch of books, like what's your favorite book or magazine or? Jeez. Oh man, really the whole arsenal, you know, I, that I'm really grateful to that, that 1950s, uh, Rodale organic gardening book, uh, because it, it just taught me all the basics, you know, and there are a lot of books out there that can do a good job of teaching you the basics of, you know, just, you know, what do all these terms mean? And, you know, what is compost? And how do I think about making compost? You know, all that kind of basic stuff. Uh, I'm really grateful to that. Although, you know, I probably haven't, haven't really cracked that book open in a couple of years, although it's, I still hold it in high reverence. Um, uh, it's, it's the more specific uh, focuses, these other books, like uh, Elliot Coleman with his book on uh, growing year-round, and uh, Steve Solomon with the, the Intelligent Gardener book on soil science. Um, ben Hartman recently wrote a great book called The Lean Farm, and that's you know for market gardeners who are trying to become more profitable on their small farms. Even though we're a nonprofit here at Grow Ohio Valley, we're still trying to be as efficient as we can and grow as much food as we can with very limited resources. You, you uh, probably to, have to more than anybody. That's right. Yeah, yeah. A that's, a, that's a good way to think about it. Yeah, because we um, our resources are pretty limited, and we want to we want to try to feed a community. Um, so yeah, so thinking about everything, you know, where where do we have yeah, uh, where do we have waste in our process, and where are we wasting time or materials and you know, what things are we doing that maybe we don't need to do and what other things can we do that would give us more bang for our buck, so to speak, with the way we're spending our time and, and money. Um, that's a really good book, Ben Hartman with The Lean Farm. I recommend that for anybody. It's, just, it's interesting philosophically, if nothing else. Um, and, you know, another one that's kind of that I, I have on my, uh, my shrine of books is uh, uh, The One Straw Revolution by... Uh, probably mispronouncing his name, Masanobu Fukuoka, the great Japanese rice farmer. Um, it's called the One Straw Revolution, and it's uh, it, it's kind of a, a, a foundational resource for anybody who's interested in this sort of eco mimicry, no till style of gardening, where you're trying to do things as much like nature and put aside the plow and the and the rototiller and and try to mimic what happens out in the forest in your vegetable garden. His, uh, uh, that book is, is also fascinating from any perspective, uh, whether you're an anthropologist or, a, or an organic gardener. Um, check out uh, uh, The One Straw Revolution. It's also a very quick, short read, and you'll, you won't regret it. Yeah. Cool. That was um, John Moore, the guy I was talking about from the Organic World News, what recommended that book when he first talked about the no-till gardening. So, uh, excellent. Okay, so ready for my final question? It's kind of a doozy. Oh, yeah. So it goes, if there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? And it can be, you know, Grow Ohio or just, you know, anything you've talked about. Sure. But if you use something different, I don't know. 
Yeah, God, that's there's so many things that I don't know how I, I can say that one thing is any more important than the other as far as, you know, is it climate, is it air pollution, is it water quality, is it, uh, you know, the refugee crisis, is it, uh, you know, kind of uh, poor human rights conditions in third world countries with extractive industries. I, you know, I didn't think of all of these things that, you know, are... Uh, things that we could do better as a human species, uh, so many things. Um, but, you know, the one that, uh, you know, that just works for me uh, and that I've, you know, has become my vocation is, is trying to get people to eat healthier food. And, you know, I, I just believe in that so much because it can, uh, when your body is healthy and, and you know, you're uh, feeling alive and full of energy, you can start to think about all these other things, you know. It's kind of like the... Uh, if we can take Wheeling, you know, who's just been so focused on its decline, our little town here, uh, on the, the kind of rust belt decline that our city's been going through, and just and help people to, uh, you know, myself included and my family included, you know, this, I'm, I'm part of this, is, is help us all kind of move out of that sort of uh, the desperation of the moment and, and feeling really good and empowered and uh, ready to take on these other issues that are really important to us. Um, I think that's really foundational, you know, to, to start with our own bodies and our own minds and, and getting ourselves feeling really good and, and then helping people to do that across the board. Uh, that's a big focus of Grow Ohio Valley is to get, uh, not just have the farmer's markets be serving, the, you know, the, the, the wealthy and the upper middle class, but be in the housing projects with our mobile farmer's market truck and uh, be at the senior citizen high-rise buildings and be in the poor schools teaching kids how to garden and give everybody this sort of uh, equitable opportunity to uh to to reclaim their their health destinies um tell me about your mobile farmer's market truck yeah sure we've got a we've got an old it's a it was a snap-on tool truck you know 20 year old truck kind of a box van uh that we uh put an awning on we cut out the sides put little coolers inside of it and we go all over wheeling um it kind of has a, a, a splashy uh, uh, design on the outside of it with vegetables all over it. And we go all over Wheeling. Uh, it runs in the summertime five days a week, and it goes to, like I was saying, housing projects or uh, high-rise buildings or uh, anywhere that there's people who don't have uh, convenient access or transportation to get to healthy food or even the cultural sort of uh, ha- habit of of eating healthy food. I live in East Wheeling, which is kind of Wheeling's wrong side of the tracks neighborhood. And every day it's, I have a convenience store literally in my backyard. And every day it's, you know, kind of a, a train of people, most of them with little kids headed to convenient to get dinner. And dinner might be, you know, a Slim Jim, a bag of Doritos and a Mountain Dew. And, uh, and you know, how do we get into these neighborhoods where that kind of thing is happening, where people aren't, you know, haven't opened their eyes to health consciousness yet and make that food available to everyone. So, we, we have this mobile farmer's market truck that goes into these neighborhoods, but then we also offer uh, incentive programs. So anybody who has food stamps, everything is half off at the farmer's market, which makes you know, kind of a tomato or a head of lettuce price point-wise competitive with, uh, with macaroni and cheese if you're trying to feed a, a big family. Uh, but so, how does so, the farmer do that? Oh, that was through the – so that's something that – as a nonprofit, we we have the ability to to raise resources for that. So <clears throat> we got a uh, we kind of put together a, a pool of money to subsidize that from 
uh, a kind of local donors and the Appalachian Regional Commission, a little bit from the Department of Agriculture. And, you know, we have a lot, a lot of sources. That whenever we try to do something like this, we can kind of piece funding together for. Um, and then that allows us, you know, we, our mobile farmer's market truck has taken off to such a degree that we can't grow enough to keep up with it. So we're buying food now from, you know, a dozen other local farmers, uh, some of whom have you know, kind of doubled their uh, or, or significantly increased their crop production to meet the demands of this mobile market that we started. So now not only do we have, you know, fresh food going into low-income communities who are able to afford it because of this, this subsidized food stamp program, but now we also have a kind of uh, a quickly growing and robust local food uh, production economy. You know, the people who are uh, local farmers right here in a kind of tri-county area that are uh, growing growing food for the first time or growing a lot more food because they have this new market outlet. Man, you are just full of great ideas and like inspiration for people and just um, different things that you've been working on. So is that, I forgot at the beginning, I was going to say, what's the food stamp challenge? Is that what the food stamp challenge is? Then? No, we call that one SNAP Match. And the SNAP Match is, uh, that's, SNAP is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as food stamps, right? same thing. Right. Um, so that's the SNAP Match program, where we match your dollar, dollar for dollar, if you come to the farmer's market. Uh, the food stamp challenge is, we have this thing called uh, food justice immersion, uh, where People come from out of town, uh, mostly from out of town or, or, or from locally, uh, to learn about the work that Grow Ohio Valley is doing and things that are happening. Kind of, The goal is for people to come and spend a week with us, and at the end of that week they have an understanding of what the food system is in our community. Uh, and, and it's a pretty small community, so you, you can wrap your head around it. It's, it's, uh, you can kind of hold it in your hands um, to learn what that food system is, who the people are who are growing food and producing food, what are most people eating, how does class and, and uh, kind of social demographics play into what people are eating and what their opportunities are and what their health is, um, to kind of take all that information and then be able to take it home with them and, uh, and apply it to their own communities and, and do something about it. Um, and the, the food stamp challenge is a part of that where it's kind of what we have people do on day one when we get there. We give them what uh, the amount of money that a, a typical single mother of three children would have to be able to prepare a meal uh, based on that and then send them off on foot in, a, in our poor neighborhood, uh, East Wheeling, to, uh, to find what they can with that amount of money. And then really all they have there, if the farmer's market isn't running that day, all they have is convenience stores. So they have to go to the convenience store and figure out how to make you know a dollar twenty-five a person turn into a dinner, um, and you know, good luck. You know, people. You know, it's like, a, what do you get? You get plain pasta, or everybody gets one bag of chips, or something like that. And that's the food stamp challenge. That's kind of the like uh, the the hard-hitting opener to that emergent uh, uh, experience. Then, do people like where do they stay? If they come, where do they come from? Yeah, sure. They, they come from anywhere and everywhere. It's mostly college kids who are on spring breaks or summer break or winter break or you know, whatever uh, break they're on. And they stay in a local homeless shelter. <clears throat> so it's kind of an empty room in one of the local shelters. And they stay there. And uh, that's pretty powerful, too. They get the uh, uh, opportunity to interact with people who are staying in the shelter. Um, they sleep on cots and... 
uh, it's you know most of the people who are coming to us, being that they're college kids, are coming from a, a background where um, they had a kind of different life looks a lot different than it does here in East Wheeling. Uh, so um, anyway, it, it, uh, it opens people's eyes up to a whole another part of America that uh, you know a lot of us don't know about. Nice. Okay, cool. So, not that you haven't already, like, just delivered tons of inspiration and stuff, but do you have an inspirational tip or quote to help motivate listeners to reach into the dirt and start their own garden? Oh, geez, starting your own garden. Well, gosh, why not? I mean, (laughs) maybe not the most uh, brilliant thing to say, but that's something I say to people all the time is, why not? You know, got you've got a yard. You know, what are you doing? Are you mowing it? Uh, You know, just... Just go out there and try something, you know, even if it's uh, just do two tomato plants. That's what I did. That was the first time I started gardening. I grew two tomato plants, and I, you know, got a couple dozen tomatoes off of them. And, boy, was it so much fun. And, and you know, if I uh, had been a person of different inclinations, maybe I'd still just be growing two tomato plants. And, uh, and that's fine. Uh, or maybe, But, you know, I, I fell in love with it, and now it's become, you know, my career. Um, but, you know, why not? You know, it's it's – it's rewarding. It's time outside. It's, you know, oh gosh, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but, um, you know, it's something you can do with your family and, uh, it's healthy. It's just like, you know, it, 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 there's no cons really. Just go give it a shot. It's, Thanks. All right. Do you just want to tell listeners how to connect with you? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So we're here at, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, the corporate headquarters of Grow Ohio Valley, this small nonprofit in Wheeling, West Virginia. And we can be reached if you want to give a call and you know, ask any questions or uh, get involved or anything like that at 304 233 4769 or also on the web at GrowOV. That's OV is in Ohio Valley. GrowOV.org. Uh, and my email address is Danny at GrowOV.org. Uh, pretty accessible. Um, yeah, love to hear from people. Thank you so much. You have just been an awesome guest and just tons of information. And like I said, golden seeds, as I call them, other podcasters call them like value bombs or golden nuggets, but, uh, just, you know, shared your passion and your, you're just a great steward of the earth. And I love the way you're working in these, you know, um, you know, struggling communities where people don't always have the opportunity to take advantage of, you know, to get access to healthy food or the important piece to me that you're really doing is you're really educating people about um, nutrition and gr- healthy soils and growing your own food. And just I love your mobile trucks ideas. And uh, you've really inspired me today and the way you work with students of all ages. And just thank you so much for sharing with us today, Danny. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you for listening to the Organic Gardener podcast. I'd like to encourage you to visit our website at organicgardenerpodcast.com. That's just organicgardenerpodcast.com. And it will link right to the show notes and all that we've talked about on today's show. Thanks for listening and remember to grow local.